Well, hey, New City, glad to be with you today as we begin uh, our study through the book of Revelation. Now, before we get into the book, I want to share a story with you about, I don't know, I was probably between 8 to 10 years old, and it was Christmas, and we were driving to my grandparents uh, for, to celebrate Christmas, which is what we did every year. Uh, they live in Statesville, North Carolina. I grew up in Cary, so it was about a two-hour, two-hour and 15-minute drive. Now, typically, my brothers and I would go up early a few days before Christmas, and then my parents would come Christmas Eve night as they were involved at the church that we grew up in, and so they were helping out with the Christmas Eve services. So they would come Christmas Eve night, and then we'd spend Christmas and a few days after uh, with my grandparents. But for this year, for whatever reason, we were all driving together. It was during the day of Christmas Eve, and we're, we're going there. Of course, it's Christmas Eve, so it's traffic. It was taking probably twice as long to get there. Uh, the highway was kind of backed up, and we're about halfway to uh, my grandparents' house when all of a sudden my dad says, oh no, I forgot the Christmas presents, to which my brothers and my mom all look at him and like, what? And then he says, but it's okay, we'll still go and we can open the Christmas presents after when we come back home after Christmas, to which we're all thinking, what are you talking about? And my mom replies, Roger, we can't have Christmas without the presents. We have to go home and get them. Now, that's what we did. We turned around, which was frustrating, but we got the presents and we got to my grandparents' house and Christmas was saved and all was good. And I share that story because in that moment, my dad forgot what the most important thing about Christmas was. The most important thing about Christmas is, of course, the presents, right? It's not Jesus it's not hanging out with your family. At least that's not the case when you're an eight-year-old eight -year boy and you know Christmas is about presents, right? To us, the most important thing about Christmas is presents. And without presents, how are you supposed to celebrate Christmas? At least that's what we thought. Now, I share that story because in life, all of us often have times in our lives where we have lost focus about on what was the most important thing. Now, of course, in that situation, presents we're not actually the most important thing, but there are many things in our life, whether it was uh, maybe a job or career we started on and then we lost track and we're more focused on money than what we actually were set out to do. Or maybe it was a relationship and it began and you really cared about the other person, but then it became a thing where how, how they could serve you and do things for you. We've all had times in our lives where even with good intentions, we, we lost focus on what was the most important thing. And so today, as we begin our series in the book of Revelation, we're looking at this question. What is the most important thing in the Christian life? If you're a follower of Jesus, what is the most important thing that we ought to pursue? And if you're not a follower of Jesus, you're probably curious about what that actually would look like. And so today, that's what we're looking at. What is the most important thing in the Christian life? So we'll be in Revelation chapter 2 this morning. As quick as I can, I want to give you a little bit of a background behind what's going on and Revelation to get us up to speed, and then we'll dive into the text. As I do, we're starting something today where you, if you have questions, because if you know anything about Revelation, you probably know that it's quite confusing in places. If you have questions, we invite you to text 919-800-0525, 919-800-0525. And if we get enough questions, if you have questions about the sermon, about the text, something that was said tonight on our New City Church Facebook page at 6 p.m., I'll be going live to the best of my ability to answer your questions. And so you'll see that phone number pop up a couple of times uh, as I go through the sermon. If you have questions, text that number in tonight at six o'clock. We'll answer it. Now, some background behind Revelation before we get into the text. Uh, it was written by John. Uh, most believe the traditional view is that it was written by John, the disciple of Jesus. It could be written by a man named John the Cross or a few other Johns, but most believe it was written by John, who was the disciple of Jesus. The book of Revelation 
was written between 90 and 95 AD. So it is the last book, the latest book written that is included in our New Testament. Uh, It's called the book of Revelation because Jesus appears to John and gives him a series of revelations of which he shares. Now at this point in John's life, he is the only disciple who was not killed for claiming that Jesus rose from the dead. All of the other disciples were killed uh, by the governing authorities. Uh, Tradition has it that that John was burned alive with oil, survived, and then he was exiled to the island of Patmos in the Mediterranean, which is where he writes this letter. Now this letter is addressed to the seven churches in the cities, uh, seven churches in seven cities of the Roman province of Asia, which is now modern-day Western Turkey, and we're going to read particularly what he has to say to those seven churches. But this book was written as a representative really to all churches, specifically to these churches, but something for all of us to take note on. And Jesus reveals himself to John in a series of visions to fortify and strengthen the church against a number of issues, some of which will be addressed in our series. And so today, we're starting a series through the seven churches. We're going to take seven weeks and start with the church of Ephesus, where he is giving specific instructions to that church. Now, there's a lot of differing opinions about how you interpret and understand the book of Revelation. Is it something to be understood as if it was written just for the first century church? Everything that was written in the book happened only in the first century, or was it supposed to be everything happening at the end of the world? Or is there some in between where some parts were written for what was happening in the first century and some parts, particularly the end of the book, was more when Jesus returns? There's a lot of differing opinions, but the good news for us in this series, the, the chapters two and three that we are in are specifically written to the seven churches and instructing them on how they should operate uh, as they read this letter and has, of course, has principles that we can learn from. And so we'll be looking at these seven letters to the seven churches in chapter two and three. Now, typically, even though they're somewhat short, these letters, these uh, instructions to the churches follow kind of this guideline. There's a description of Jesus, a commendation, things are doing well, uh, a rebuke, things that something that they're not doing too well, a solution, what they need to do to correct, to correct the problem, a consequence for disobedience. So if they do not repent or correct this problem, here's what will happen. And also a promise for people who conquer, or in other words, a promise for those who do follow Jesus and trust in him. And so this is the kind of the structure that we'll see in these letters. Again, a description of Christ, a commendation, a rebuke, a solution, consequence for disobedience, and a promise for the conquerors, those who actually follow Jesus. Now, we are again today in chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. This is to the church in Ephesus, which was the most important and prominent, culturally speaking, of the seven cities of which this letter is addressed to. Um, It had a massive trading port and even a massive religious center. Uh, In fact, the Temple of Artemis, which was one of the original seven wonders of the world, was located in Ephesus. And so there's a lot of commerce, there's a lot of religious vitality, and this is what the revelation of Jesus to John concerning the church in Ephesus says uh, in chapter 2, verses 1, it says this, "'Write to the angel of the church in Ephesus, thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands.'" So already, I have no idea what John is saying. 
Just kidding. Well, kind of. I kind of maybe know. Here, here, let me try to explain it the best that I can. When he says, write to the angel to the church in Ephesus, it could be a number of things. Angel here could be to the pastor, to the pastor or the leader or the messenger of the church in Ephesus. It could be that literal angels were sending this message. Or it could be what seems most likely to be essentially a personification of the kind of the church or the spirit or the identity of each church. And so when he says to the angel of the church in Ephesus, he's likely saying to really the spirit to those that are in the church of Ephesus. And then it says, uh, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. This is a reference to Revelation chapter one, where it describes the son of man, Jesus. And and John uses this description for each of the churches. And so in Revelation chapter one, uh, it says this in verses 12 and 13. It says, then I spoke to those who saw the voice Or then I turned to to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe with a golden sash around his chest. And in verse 16, it says, He had seven stars in his right hand. A sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was shining like the sun at full strength. So again, he's he's borrowing from his his, uh, representation of Christ in chapter 1 to say, This is a message, a revelation of Jesus. And here's what the revelation is. Verse 2. Christ, it says this, uh, I know your works, your labor, and your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil people. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. What we see here is that Christ knows all that they do and knows that all that we do, he sees everything, and he begins by commending them in a few specific ways. He's like, here's what you're doing well. He says you have good works, so in general that they're striving to, to, to accomplish good works. He says that they labor, which is the Greek word kopos, which means that they work to the point of weariness. In other words, even though it's hard sometimes, they're still trying to be faithful. That they have endurance, which means that they accept the suffering and hardships of following Jesus in first century Rome. And yet they still continue and they don't tolerate evil people and false teachers, right? They believe in right doctrine. They, They reject those who try to add things to the gospel. And so they're focused on believing the right thing and doing the right things. In other words, they took their faith seriously and they strived hard in it. So he said, I'm commending you for this. Verse three, he says, I know that you have persevered and endured hardships for the sake of my name. So for the sake of Christ, and you have not grown weary. So what he's saying is that they do all these things well. Now, here's what's interesting, at least to me, and I don't know if this is your experience. Maybe I'm only speaking for myself, but I think it's fascinating that in all these letters to all these different churches, when they all have different issues, he doesn't start by saying, here's where you're screwing up and here's what you need to do to get better. What he starts by doing is saying, here's where I see you being faithful and I wanna commend you. I feel like, at least me personally, I always kind of, sometimes I think if God could, if Jesus were to reveal himself and talk to me, I feel like the first thing he would say is, Dylan, you know, listen, buddy, I know you're trying really hard, but you are blowing it in some of these areas. Like we've been working on some of this stuff and there's still problems for you. Like what's going on? 
But that's not what Jesus does. He starts with love and kindness and encourages them because that's who he is. And so what I want to do is I want to take a second, and not to give you really a point from the text, but I want to take a second and commend you, New City Church. It's really an honor and a privilege for me to be the pastor of this church and have so many wonderful people. And so I want to take a second and really commend you in three specific ways and ways that you encourage me and ways that I think you are faithful to Jesus. Because I think often we often think, here are all the ways that I'm falling short. But God is a good and gracious God. And I think especially for those that are in Christ, he sees us as holy and righteous and pure and he loves us. So I want to commend you like John is doing here. I want to commend you in three specific ways that you're being really faithful. One is that your, is your love for one another. I think New City, you guys do an amazing job of loving one another. And of course, we've seen this. I've seen this in the pandemic of people praying for, caring for, following up with, seeing how each other are doing. But even before this happened, right, people so often, new people, as they come to New City Church, one of the first things they tell me is that when I walked in the doors, I just felt like people care, like people talk to me, uh, people want to know how I'm doing. It's not about how much money you make or how cool you might think you are. There is a genuine sense of love for one another to which I want to commend you and say thank you for representing Christ in that, in one way, in that way. I think that's a strength of our church because of your love for one another. A second thing that I would say, man, you guys are doing an amazing job. I think New City does well, is, that, is your willingness to live faithfully. Your willingness to live faithfully, faithfully, your willingness to be on mission. Again, our mission here at New City Church is to help as many people as possible meet Jesus and grow in a relationship with him. And if you've been part of New City Church for any length of time, you know that we change things, we try new things, we do things differently. And every time, you, so many of you are like, I'll do whatever it takes. I'll put my preferences aside. And if I have questions about why certain things are happening this way, I'm not going to come with a vindictive attitude. I'm going to say, I don't understand. Can you explain this to me so that I can be on mission? And in fact, even in the midst of this pandemic and trying to figure out when are we going to gather again physically on Sundays and what's that going to look like, I have yet to receive one phone call or text or email from anybody saying, why isn't the church doing this? Or I can't believe you guys are doing it this way. Why? Your willingness to live faithfully on mission is to be commended, and it is a joy to see. And then a third commendation that I would give our church, specifically to those that call New City Church home, is your generosity. You know, one of our values here at New City Church is that grateful people give. We value financial generosity, not because we care about your money. Trust me, I could not care less about your money. But I do care about your heart because Jesus cares about our heart. And he talks about our resources more than he talks about anything else in the Gospels. Why? Because our resources drive our hearts. And when it comes to following Jesus, typically uh, trusting Jesus with our finances is the last step in that process because it's one of the few things that we feel like we can control. And even in the midst of this pandemic, you guys have been faithfully giving and supporting the mission. And it's made it possible for more people to meet Jesus, for us to grow, for people to see and experience him even during this pandemic. And so like he is commending them, I want to commend you and your love for one another, your willingness to live faithfully on mission, and your generosity. Now, that being said, we'll get back to the text. Here is what it says in verse four. First part of verse four, it says this, but I have this against you. So he's saying, here are the things that I'm commending, but here comes the rebuke. Here is the problem. Now, what's interesting is that oftentimes our weaknesses are simply our strengths taken to extreme. Our strengths, maybe when we're being unhealthy, taken to extreme, they become our weaknesses. So for example, let's say uh, somebody is a very kind and compassionate and forgiving person. Well, that's a strength. That's a good thing. 
but it can become a weakness if they allow people to mistreat them time and time again. If they're not concerned for their own well-being, their strength can be taken to an extreme. It can become a weakness. Or let's say you're very wise financially, and that's a strength of yours. And so you budget and you plan. Well, it can become a weakness if you never allow yourself to take a vacation. If you never do anything that's of an enjoyment to you and instead are just trying to build up your savings account for who knows when. It's good to be wise with your money, but it can become a weakness if you never use it for anything beneficial. Or I'll give you a personal example. I guess you could say this is a strength of mine is that I'm, I'm, I'm not afraid to be honest. I'm willing to tell people what I think, especially if they ask me what my opinion is. I, want to, I was going to probably tell you anyway, but the fact that you asked me, like, I'll be honest. Like, I'm not afraid to be honest, which can be a good thing, right? It can, we can get to the heart of the issue. We can make tough decisions. Like, I'll say what needs to be said. However, it can be a weakness. So let me give you an example. In college, when Christina and I, uh, we, were, we had uh, already broken up once. Christina had spent the previous summer on a mission trip. She was gone for like 10 or 12 weeks, and she had come up, and it was really hard, and she came back. She broke up with me, but then we got back together, and uh, we were in her apartment one evening when her friend, her roommate, Virginia, was upset because she had just found out that her boyfriend uh, was going to be studying abroad in Hong Kong next semester, so she wasn't going to see him for four months. And of course, she was upset because she wasn't going to see him, and the time difference would be hard to communicate. And so if you know Christina, you know you know that she responded probably the best way possible. She's like, Virginia, I'm so sorry. I'm going to be here for you. What can I do to help? We're going to take this a day at a time. It's going to be okay, and we'll get through this, right? Her kind, compassionate self. Me, I just was honest about the situation. I said, Virginia, this really sucks. Christina and I did long distance this summer, and it was really hard, and she broke up from me, broke up with me. Like, this really stinks, right? Now, well, everything I said was factual, and it was true, but that's not the time for that. Like, when someone hears bad news, you don't give them all the facts and the details about how their life is terrible, right? That's not the time for that. It's not the time to be honest about what's going on. It's a time for grace and compassion. It's a strength. Take it to extreme, and that's what we're going to see here. They have a strength of right doctrine and doing the right thing, but they've overcompensated, and it's become too much of a focus for them. And here's the problem, verse 4. Again, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. They have abandoned the love they had at first. Now, love here could be a number of, uh, could be one of three things. It could be their love for Christ has waned, has waned. It could be their love for one another has gone down. Or it could be their love for people in general, just the people in their community. What's most likely here, it could be, a, or it could be a mixture of all three, but most likely here, given the context, is it seems to be that their love for one another is the focus. Their love and their kindness and their compassion for one another has gone downhill. And so they're so focused on right doctrine and doing the right things, which of course is to be commended and is worth pursuing, that they have lost sight of the most important thing about being a follower of Jesus. And what is the most important thing? Going to our question that we began. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Well, I'll just read the first three verses. The context here is he's talking about unity in the body of Christ and spiritual gifts and how some people are good at other things. But then he says this, verse 13, verses 1 through 3. He says, if I speak human or angelic tongues, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all the mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions, and if I give over my body in in order to boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. 
What is he saying? The most important uh, characteristic of a follower of Jesus is love. Why is that? Here's why. Here's the point. That love is the fruit of a relationship with Christ. Love, not how much you know, not what you do uh, in terms of trying to make a, mark a checklist or trying to get on God's good side, but love is the fruit of a relationship with Christ. Now, this looks different for different people. This does not mean that if you've been following Jesus for one year, you'll be this loving of a person, and then in five years, you'll be this loving of a person. You know, based on our, our history, our background, what we've walked through, what's happened to us, it will change and it will impact where we are in terms of how we love and interact with other people. But what, that being said, what this does mean is that as we follow and pursue Jesus, that the love for others that he has shown to us should impact how we treat other people. It looks different based on maybe your background, but the fruit of following Jesus is not just knowing all the right things, but it is loving people, which is why he says this in verse five. It says this, remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. What he's saying here is that here's the rebuke, right? The rebuke is that they have lots of love for one another. And the solution is to remember their love for one another and how Jesus shaped that when they first started following and believing in him. So he tells them to repent, repent of the ways you have not been loving people. Repent literally means to break away, to break away from wrongdoing, to turn, the, to turn a direction and live out of the love that motivated them at first. It wasn't just knowing the right things. It was a seeing and experience the grace that God had given them and sharing that with others. And so he says, repent and love people well. If not, then he will remove their lampstand. Now, removing the lampstand here is signifies the destruction of the church. Now, we're not sure what that would look like or how it would happen if it simply people would just stop gathering because they didn't feel love and compassion or some outside force would kind of quench the uh, church there and ever since. We don't know, but he's saying if you do not repent and begin to love one another, my, me, my presence will be removed from you. And so he says, repent, right? Because what happens when you repent? You're forgiven. Right? You're forgiven, which is one of, the, here's one of the crazy things about Jesus, right? No matter who you are or what you have done, any, any time that you and I repent to him, he gives us grace. That Jesus is unfathomably gracious to us. It's not do all these things and then if you keep a good record for a while, then I'll give you grace. He says, just repent. Be honest about your condition. Turn to me and you will be forgiven and you will be restored. But if not, he says, there is no hope for you. What's, here's what I find fascinating. They had right doctrine. They believed intellectually many of the right things, but they did not love any. They did not love well, which in their in Jesus's mind equals apostasy. Now, apostasy is just a churchy word to say falling away from the faith. So it's not about just knowing the right things, but it's about seeing and experiencing Jesus that matters. In other words, here's what we need to know: that doctrine doesn't save you. Jesus does. Doctrine does not save you. Jesus does. It's not just about believing the right things and maybe in our context today, having the right verses memorized and explaining the Trinity and Jesus and, and what justifications and sanctification and whatever words that you want to use. to do. It's not about that. 
It's about Jesus. Jesus saves us, not having an intellectual knowledge of things, right? It's what we do with Jesus and how Jesus through his spirit impacts us that matters, right? And we know this to be true, right? For example, all of us know how to be healthy, right? You eat the right things, you exercise, you avoid certain things, but, uh, but in order to be healthy, you actually, actually, you can't just know how to be healthy, you gotta do it. Right? If you want to play an instrument, it's not just about knowing you need to practice and, and knowing you need to do all the learn music and all the theory and all sort of you actually have to do it. It's not just about knowing right things that matters, what you do with what you know. And so doctrine is not what saves us. It's important and we need to have you know right beliefs and right doctrine so that we can see Jesus for who he is. But it is Jesus, not intellectual understanding, that saves us. It's Jesus. That saves us. And if there's a gap there, then we're missing out on what God has for us. And I kind of think of it like this, right? Uh, I, I've got young kids, and so there are certain things that Christine and I watch or say or do that our kids are not allowed to do because it's just not appropriate. They're young. They don't understand, right? But as they get older, that gap between what mom and dad do and what they do shrinks into eventually at some point, they ought to be able to watch everything we watch. They ought to be able to speak and to say everything that we say. They ought to be able to do everything we do. And if that doesn't happen, it shows a dissonance between what we think is good for people and our kids, but what we actually want to do. You can think of it like this, especially when it comes to doctrine and Jesus and how this plays out. Think of it like this. That stated belief plus actual practice equals actual belief. Your stated belief, what you say you believe, plus what you actually do equals what you actually believe, right? Because what we do is driven from what we actually believe. Stated belief plus actual practice equals actual belief. You see, the church in Ephesus said that they loved Jesus and said that they loved other people, but they were not living out that truth, which means they might not have actually believed it to the degree that they said that they did. This is what James chapter two, who was the half-brother of Jesus, he puts it this way in verses 14 through 19. I just wanna read this. He says, he says it this way. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith, but does not have works? Can such safe faith save him, right? Can he claim to believe the right things, but not do anything with it? Is he still saved? He says, if a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm, and be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it, right? In the same way, faith, if it doesn't have works, is dead by itself. He's not saying your works save you, but how we live and treat other people is an outpouring of what we actually believe. How can we say in this example, if we see somebody suffering and we know we, God wants us to do something about the situation and we do nothing with it, how can we say we're actually following Jesus? Verse 18, he says this, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I will show you faith by my works. In other words, because I've been saved, this is how it's changing how I live. And then he says this really fascinating point in verse 19. He says, you believe that God is one. Good. Even the demons believe and they shudder. Even the demons believe that God is one. Here's the thing. The devil and demons have a better theology of God than you or I. Right? They know God more and better than you and I, and yet what's the problem? They still shudder at his sight or at his thought. Why? Because they don't have that relationship with him. In other words, you could think of it like this, that salvation requires repentance. 
the difference is it's not just having an intellectual knowledge that God exists or even believing that Jesus is, could possibly be the son of God who he claims to be, but it's actually requiring us to have a right relationship, a turning relationship, a, a following relationship with him that actually matters. Salvation requires Repentance, it requires taking about what we know about God, being honest about our condition, and, and, and asking God to do what only he could do, which is to give us the grace and mercy that we deserve. What's interesting to me is that salva- all we have, salvation in, in its essence and at its core is us simply being honest. You know, our, our culture today, we're told, you know, that we, we have everything that we need within ourselves. Just trust in yourself and you can overcome any obstacle, which in my belief is part of the reason why we have such a struggle with depression and anxiety, because we're told that we can accomplish things and do things and figure out life on our own. But yet internally, we know that's not true. And so we're suffering because we can't live up to the expectations that we know we can't actually meet. And what Jesus does is he looks at us and he says, I know you can't do that. And this is why I've come that Jesus has lived up to the expectations that you and I cannot live up to, that he was perfect and righteous and gladly gave his life for us so that anyone who would trust, believe, and repent and be honest about our condition can have the identity of Christ, of blameless, of holy, of forgiven, of love, that everything that we are trying to achieve on our own is given to us in Christ. This is the gospel. The gospel is that anyone who trusts and believes in Jesus has nothing to prove and no one to impress. That salvation requires repentance. Salvation requires us to be honest about our need for him. And he gladly does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. What's fascinating to me is that sometimes people will say, well, scripture is really confusing. And I would say, that's true. There are things in scripture that are confusing. In this series, we are going to read some things that are confusing. But here is not what, here's what isn't confusing. What God asks of us is crystal clear. Maybe it's like, what does this verse mean? And what is the historical context? Yeah, and so it's good to have people who spend time studying and trying to figure it out so we can learn. But what's, what, what, what God wants us to do is emphatically clear throughout Scripture. Repent of our sins, trust in Him, love Him, and then by extension, love other people. Not so He'll love us more, but so that as many people as possible can see and experience the grace that we have received on our own and will be entered into God's kingdom, not because of us, because of him. There are things in scripture that are confusing. What God asks us to do is not. To ask us to love people is quite clear. And so the question for us is, where do we need to repent? Not in the sense of that, that our salvation is at stake and not in the sense of that God is angry at us because we, we are imperfect and we are fallen people. But where in our lives, if we're being honest, do we need to repent and we need to be honest with God with? Where is that for you and for me? Because we will always miss out on what the fullness of what God has for us if we are not honest about our weaknesses, about our shortcomings, and asking God and his spirit to refill us and to renew us into his image. Where do you and I need to repent? Because salvation requires repentance. And that's what he's calling them to do here. And he ends by saying this uh, in verses six and seven. He says, you do have this. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So you can kind of give them like a compliment sandwich here. Here's some good things. Here's a not a good thing. And here's another good thing. Now, again, we're not sure who the Nicolaitans are. We're not exactly even sure what they taught. But rightfully so, the Ephesians hated their practices. It doesn't say they hated the, the, the Nicolaitans themselves, but he hated their practices. What, what was likely happening is some people were coming into the church and trying to add to the gospel. It's Jesus plus doing these things with Jesus plus avoiding these things. And they're rightfully saying, no, it's about Jesus, not about doing X, Y, and Z for God to love us. 
And then he says this in verse 7. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. He's saying, listen to what the Spirit is saying. To those who conquer, again, to those who follow and trust and believe in Jesus and have repented and have have trusted him and his saving work and not in ourselves, will be conquerors. And you and I, in God's kingdom, or when he returns again, whatever happens first, will eat from the tree of life. Now, this is reimagining Genesis chapter one, where God created the world and then humans arrive on the scene and he places them in a garden where the tree of life is. And if you take from the tree of life, you will receive eternal life and life will be going well and and be abundant for you. Of course, sin entered the world and so they were cut off from the tree of life. And what he is saying here is that all who trust and follow me and love people well because they've experienced the love that I have given them in my kingdom will have unlimited access to the tree of life and will be able to experience the grace and mercy that I have for them for forever. And so as I kind of close this first letter to Ephesus, here's kind of what I am taking away. It's kind of the main point of what, of what Jesus through John is getting across, and that's this. That right belief always leads to love. Right belief, true belief in Jesus and who he is always leads to love. We can disagree about certain things. We can have differing opinions about certain things. But if we actually believe Jesus and everything that he has for us, it will always lead us to love other people. Now, to be clear, I think sometimes we think of Jesus as like the stereotypical hipster Jesus. Whatever happens, happens. And, you know, as long as you're not hurting anybody else, do whatever you want. But biblically speaking, that's not what love is. That's not what love is. Love is concerned with justice. Love is willing to uh, have difficult conversations with people because you care for them and you want to make sure they're doing okay. Love is forgiving people who do not deserve it, who actually have hurt you. Love is caring more about the good, the, how other people are doing and their well-being than your own. Love is hard, but it is what right belief actually leads us into. I want to read to you as I close. Let me just read to you this. This is who actually Jesus is. If we want to have a real picture of the fullness of who Jesus is, here's what it says in Revelations chapter 1, verses 12 through 16. John says this, Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. So this is Jesus giving him these revelations. He says, When I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe with a golden sash wrapped around his chest. The hair of his head was white as wool, white as snow, and his eyes like a fiery flame. His feet were like fine bronze as it is fired in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of cascading waters, which is powerful. He had seven stars in his right hand and a sharp double-edged sword coming from his mouth, and his face was shining like the sun at full strength. What we see here is John is probably to some degree struggling to try to put into human words what he actually experienced. But what we see here is a righteous and a mighty and an all-powerful God who is over everything. And yet, in his mightiness and his righteousness and his justice, he still gives us love and he still gives us grace. And this is the Lord that we follow. That if him and his, and his abundant amazingness and power gives us grace and mercy, then as we pursue him and care about right doctrine and care about good deeds, more than anything else, it should pursue us to love because Christ has given love to us. Again, right belief always leads to love. And into the areas of our life that we are not loving to the degree that we should, 
we should ask and invite God to transform our hearts so that we can be as faithful and as loving as possible in the same way that God has been to us. Right belief always leads to love. Let's pray.